Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the spirit of worship uh, that you've uh, brought in this church this morning. And I pray that you would just help us to continue in our worship together as we look into your word. And uh, thank you for uh, the outpouring of love, even from this body, for believers in Ukraine. And uh, we love them, Lord. We love you. Pray your hand on them right now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue in Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, Mark said he's going to give me a break. (laughs) Pretty soon. Praise God, right? Amen. (laughs) So thankful for the chance to to get to share today. And um, I don't know about next time, though. Chapter 7, Melchizedek, I haven't even really started studying, so go ahead and get ahead of me on that, (laughs) and I'll try to as well uh, whenever that next time is. But today, chapter 6, verses 9 through 20, and last time we kind of got through one of the tougher passages in God's Word, and maybe today... Some of that will, again, kind of come back up in our brains and make a little bit of sense. Let's read chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered. And in still ministering to the saints, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you'll not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited... He obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, um, whenever I... get to preach, whenever I get to come up here, whenever I get to teach uh, in my job at Calvary as dean of students or as volleyball coach, I kind of feel like one of the overarching principles, one of the overarching goals is always going to be growth of believers, for believers to be helped in their growth. That's the goal. Uh, obviously, the primary goal is the glory of God. And as you teach, as you look at God's Word, as we look at God's Word together, the care for truth is a goal. 
But I kind of see, as, as I was studying this passage, it may not sound like it immediately. Chapter 6 may not sound like it immediately. But as we look at the key contextual considerations, I think what we see is that our author was worried, worried about the growth of these believing Hebrews. He cared about their growth. He cared about their growth. And he takes a really unique perspective at helping them care about their growth as believers. So as we think about the context, we must remember where we were contextually last couple of times we got together on this passage. In the previous chapter and a half, Jesus is called by God to be the only perfect high priest. He is called. God calls him to that. Jesus deals gently with us. He is our source of eternal salvation. Yet, the Hebrews that are recipients of this letter are dull of hearing, is what the author tells us at the end of chapter 5. Though they should be teachers by this time, they are still immature, still spiritually babies. They lack discernment. Our author calls them to press on to maturity of thought, like being able to understand Melchizedek and these harder ideas, and maturity of living. The fields of their life seem thorny. Thorns are burned up. If they were to go back to Judaism, as some of them seem to be tempted to do, uh, I think our author is communicating that. But if they were to go back to Judaism in some sense, like fall completely off the wagon, there is no unique or new repentance available to bring them back into the body again. Christ cannot be re-crucified. Instead, they must go on to maturity. That's where we are contextually as we pick up in verse 9. And verse 9, But, beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you. Do you know that this is the only time in the book of Hebrews where where our author calls the readers... Beloved, or agapetos. Yeah, you hear that word agape there. The love of God, which is unconditional. That's what he's referencing when he says, but beloved. The only time he uses it. It's used 61 times in the New Testament. And you know who it's usually used of. It's often used of Christ, the beloved Son of God. And then the only other way that it is used is His beloved people. Those who have been called according to His purpose, believers. So it's used of Christ and it's used of believers. Do you think this could be a hint at the true understanding of verses 4 through 8, which are hard to listen to? One verse after that harsh language about thorns and burning, how does our author continue? He continues by saying, But, beloved... We're convinced of better things concerning you. Related to this, I pick up on a couple of ideas, or I, I picked up on a couple of ideas reading a book recently by Larry Crabb. He's a Christian counselor. I'm sure there are some in here who have heard of him. Maybe some agree or disagree with some of his methods. But here are a couple things that I picked up on that I think I hear in the voice of this author as he says to these believers who are struggling, maybe falling off the Wagon completely, going back to Judaism, not really following after Christ. 
his heart for them? Here are a few things I picked up in this book that I read. Um, it's an old book, and it's called Connecting. Okay. Um, Larry Crabb says that we need to give one another a taste of Christ's delighting in us. Do we delight in each other, and do we verbalize that? Uh, in Sunday school today, we were talking about uh, the, the prodigal son. You see a father who delights in his child coming home. No matter the fact that his child was in a bad place, he delights in this child coming home. I know as men, we probably struggle with this more than women, I think. Verbally delighting in each other. I think I see Kelly and her really good friends, especially in this church, which is beautiful, delighting in each other and saying it. Oh, I really enjoy how you, this, before the Lord you're seeking after God in this way. Guys, maybe we struggle with that more, but maybe all of us struggle with it in some ways. Do we verbally delight in one another? And that's just a taste of how the Lord would delight in us. Secondly, he says, we need to be diligent to search for goodness in one another. Diligent to search for goodness. And again, I've got to reference our Sunday school class, which I counted today. We had 35 people in there. It was so fun to see that. Uh, People caring about God's Word, studying Ephesians together. Thank you so much, Tim, for taking us through this study. Do we do a diligent search for goodness in one another? In our conversations, are we looking for goodness that God has placed in us when he made us new, new creations? Jesus lives in that person. If they're a believer, Jesus lives in you. Are we doing a diligent search for that goodness and the desire to follow after God in those conversations? And finally, Crab says, we need to help each other see the good future that God can complete in us. Look 5, 10, 20 years down the road with someone and say, as you follow after him in this way, look at what he could do in your life. Here are the things he can do as you follow after him. As we continue growing. Now, I'm not saying that in and of ourselves we are delightful and good. There are a lot of churches across America, that's exactly what they say. You walk in and they say, oh, you're delightful, you're good. And if you're not believing, those are the wrong words to say. But after salvation, given how the Lord has changed us on the deepest level, we are a new creation. We are exactly that to God. We are delightful. In our new state, we are unconditionally acceptable to God. That doesn't mean every decision we make is acceptable. But we, in our new state, are unconditionally acceptable to God as the prodigal son was to his father. Our deepest desires change at point of salvation. That doesn't mean all our desires change because we still have a flesh to battle. I think our deepest desires change. We desire to follow after the Lord. I hear that in my conversations with the believers in this church. I'm telling you. With the believers that I come into contact with at Calvary, I hear, I just don't want this thing that is a struggle for me. I don't want that. I want to follow the Lord in this. Our deeper desire is to follow the Lord in these areas. We battle the flesh. 
but the deepest desires. They change. Listen to the verse, these uh, two verses description of who we are as his children, God's children. Romans 15, 14 says, and concerning you, my brothers and sisters, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. And then turning back to a Psalm of David, Psalm eighteen nineteen says, He also brought me out into an open place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This royal Psalm of David, a royal Psalm of thanksgiving. It is one of David's poems in Israel adapted for use in public worship. Can you think of singing that together? And we do sing songs that say similar things to this, and I think it's beautiful. Um, from my traditional background, it would be hard to sing that. The Lord delights in me. I grew up with a focus on worship is about God. That is true. Worship is about God. But here we see the fact that God delights in his children is a characteristic of who he is as father. This adds to why he is so worthy of worship. It's who he is that he would delight in his followers and his believers. Consider the prodigal son as we have. Did the father not delight in his son and search for the goodness in him that day? Even if it was solely coming to his senses and coming home. Unworthy, but delightful to his father. The author of Hebrews is convinced of the goodness of these Hebrews, of these believers. He is looking for something to celebrate in them. Though he is speaking in this way, that's the way verse 9 ends. Though I'm speaking in this way, this seemingly harsh way, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you or excellent things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. And continuing in verses 10 and 11, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. Uh, In these verses, we see how these truths maybe fully hit home. Uh, Give us a little bit of a better picture of what's going on. Your love and ministry are an assurance of the reality of your faith and your perseverance. I think that's what he's telling them. Your love and ministry are assurance to you. Your love and ministry confirm this. And they're an encouragement to go forward in maturity. The fact that you have loved the brethren, that you have ministered to the brethren, you have done it and you continue to do it. This should be assurance to you. An encouragement to go forward in maturity. Remember, I think this whole passage, end of five through end of six, is about maturity. Verses 12 uh, and beyond continue. Those, those who have gone before in faithfulness are an assurance of the reality of your faith and perseverance. And also an encouragement to go forward in maturity. So... Um, let me go here. Okay, so some details from 10 through 12. So why did, 
Why did the author call him beloved? He answers that question. Why is the author convinced of excellent things in them? Well, one stated, uh, one stated reason he gives us is their love, work, ministry, and diligence. This is a good reason to call them beloved. And the having ministered and still ministering to the saints in verse 10 is also evidence of their willingness to identify themselves with the stigma attached to the name of Jesus. And thus it shows their genuine love for him. Verse 11, we desire each of you to show that same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. Some of the Jewish believers are considering going back to Judaism. In verse 11, our author can say to them, No, I want you to realize the full assurance of your hope all the way through the end. Don't turn away. Instead, go on to maturity. And in maturity, you'll find this assurance. Is this group struggling with assurance? Assurance that the Lord is coming? Assurance that they will go to be with Him? Are they doubting some future facts about God's plan? It sure seems like it. And it seems that our author is going to answer those doubts very clearly. The first answer is, you've shown faith in your ministry. Press on. You've been faithful. You've loved well. Press on. Your love and ministry are an assurance of the reality of your faith and your perseverance. This is an encouragement to go forward in maturity. And then 12 through 15, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. This word in 12, so that you will not be sluggish, that sluggish right there, this is the same word that was used in in 5.11. So if you turn back and you saw, hey, you guys are sluggish, you're not ready to hear, you can't understand the deeper things, the same word is being used there. Our author does not want the recipients to end up in a continued lazy, dull, or immature relationship to God in His Word. He would rather them be imitators of the faithful, like Abraham. Abraham is spoken in numerous places in Scripture as the father of those who have faith. He's the father of those with faith. He he had faith. And we look back to him and say, oh, look at his faith. Wow. And we can have faith too. Our author just wants his recipients to be faithful. Without faithfulness... They don't move on to maturity. Abraham is the perfect example for these Jewish believers. He was faithful and he was patient. He took God at his word. He waited 25 years after the original promise of Isaac, uh, of of a child, uh, for that birth. Waited 25 years. In verses 13 to 15, we have another hint about the meaning of the chapter a little bit more broadly. Abraham is recognized for his faith, not necessarily for his actions. Though he is recognized for his actions in other passages here, he's not necessarily. If we focused on his actions, we'd find him trying to make Eleazar a pseudo-son, or even going into Hagar for a son he thought could maybe be the child of promise. His actions weren't always impressive. Yet he believed the Lord. Even when he took Isaac up the mountain, he believed the Lord. 
could and would raise him from the dead. He believed the Lord. It was his faith. In verse 15, we're told that Abraham patiently waited and obtained the promise. That has been a challenge for these believers that the author is writing to. Patiently waiting to obtain the promise. That was hard for them. They were being persecuted. Trying to understand, when is this coming? Is it really coming? I have to know. I want to see. I want to give me something. They just aren't sure about their future. Their circumstances are challenging. And it's causing them to maybe doubt and possibly come close to falling away. And I think the overarching point for those verses 12 through 15 is that those who have gone before in faithfulness, faithfulness, they are an assurance of the reality of your faith and your perseverance. They are an encouragement to go forth in maturity. Look back at Abraham. He obtained that promise. He was faithful. We can be too. Go forward. Be assured. Okay, so we see the promise and the oath mentioned in 12 and 13. Uh, Then as we continue forward, let's read 16 through 18. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of his promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge. Excuse me, uh, which is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The two unchangeable things is kind of the confusing thing here, as you, maybe as I first read it at least. What are those two things? I, it almost looks like there's one thing. God said, so it's true, right? Um, so these two unchangeable things are, yes, God's word. He said it. But then he also, to Abraham, he said, I make an oath by myself. So his word and his oath, or someone would say his promise and his oath. So he promised it, and then he said, I am going to do it. I make an oath by myself. They explain this. Men swear by powerful men, or rulers, or gods, or God. That's what they're trying to tell us there. For men, verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves. God cannot swear by one higher than himself. It's impossible. So he does his best and condescends to our level and says, I'll swear by the highest thing possible, and that's myself. He swears by himself. In our times of temptation and doubt, our temptation or doubt, as we think about shrinking back, us, these uh, recipients of this letter as well, what can we flee to? We can flee to the promises of God. We can take hold of them. There is an incredible comparison brought to mind by the author here. In the Old Testament, we're introduced to the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge. If a person were to commit manslaughter, one of the examples that we're given is an axe head flying off the axe as they're swinging. And it kills someone, and that family, that person is after you. In the Old Testament, they had cities of refuge. What can they do? Uh, They can flee to a city of refuge... And take hold of the horns of the altar to be protected. 
This fearful person in Israel flees to the city of refuge, lays hold to the horns of the altar to be safe from the assailants. This protection was provided by God. Notice the language used at the end of verse 18. We who have taken refuge. Is that how you view your salvation? It's not the only view of our salvation, but it is one. We who have taken refuge. It's a reality. Isn't it good to take refuge in the all-powerful, immutable God of the universe? And from this section, 18 through, excuse me, 16 through 18, really, I think the overarching point is God's word and his oath are an assurance of the reality of our faith and perseverance. They should be an encouragement to us to go forward in maturity. And finally, verses 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one who enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. These verses provide another illustration of our assurance. When Jesus Christ entered heaven at his ascension, he took the hope of our future with him. In the first century, sailors would carry their ship's anchor on a small boat and deposit it on the shore so that, so that the ship would not drift as the waves would beat against it. That boat was called a forerunner. Likewise, the hope that Jesus Christ is planted firmly in heaven should serve as an anchor for our storm-tossed souls. It should keep us from drifting away from God. Our anchor rests firmly in the Holy of Holies, in God's presence in heaven. Our anchor is Jesus. In Hebrews, the word hope never describes a subjective attitude. You've heard this before, I'm sure. But it always denotes the objective content of that hope that is a reality, consisting of present and future salvation. That's what our hope is, present and future salvation. The anchor may be out of sight, but the anchor holds. That's what matters. In point of fact, our anchor of hope, with its two chains of God's truthfulness and his oath, is Jesus within the veil. Our anchor holds. Does the fact that the anchor holds rely on a boat that holds tightly to the rope and does its best to not pull too hard against the anchor? And if the ship gets turned in the waters and proceeds directly away from the anchor, which is secure on land, then does the anchor give in, realizing the ship's purpose is to go its own way for a time? When does Jesus pull anchor and toss himself out of the Holy of Holies? When we, sin too, when we sin too much, when we are mad at God for some event in our life, when we leave him for ten years, when we apostatize, when we deny his name like Peter, when we run away like Jonah, no, the anchor holds. Christian use of the anchor echoes Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Epitaphs on believers' tombs dating as far back as the end of the first century 
frequently displayed anchors alongside messages of hope. In AD 302 and 303, Kelly and I had the chance to go to the Roman catacombs a few years back when we were living near there. And in AD 302, 303, Emperor Diocletian persecuted Christians. You know of it. Many Christians died under this persecution. Many were forced underground into the catacombs at times for worship or communion. At least 66 pictures of anchors appear in the catacombs under Rome, under Rome, indicating that it, it was a popular Christian symbol of Jesus Christ. We often use a cross. They often used an anchor. Jesus is that anchor. Under persecution, thinking of an anchor in the Holy of Holies, as Hebrews communicates here, is a pretty strong symbol. And that's what they used. Inasmuch as hope concerns the future and the Christian's hope is identified with the second coming of Christ, the child of God is ever looking forward. By looking forward, he is kept from looking back. By looking upward, he is kept from looking down. Thus he is held steadfast and secure. He is saved from drifting. In the olden times, a vessel would need assistance in order to reach port. In such cases, that forerunner went from the ship to shore with a strong rope, which he fastened securely to a huge immovable rock. Once joined to the rock, safe at shore, the vessel was thus brought in. If he's the forerunner, who's the afterrunner? Does that mean that we get to go there? I think that's another biblical guarantee of the rapture. It's not only about things on earth, but we will go to heaven to be with him. The writer was ready now in verse 20 to proceed to serve the solid food he said that the readers needed to eat. This spiritual meat was an exposition concerning the present high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ and how it looks back at Melchizedek. That's where he's headed next. For me, and maybe for you, believer, uh, not maybe, for you, believer, where do we find assurance of our faith and perseverance? Where do we find encouragement to go forward in maturity? Our author gives us four options, four things that we can look at. And these aren't, it's not a limit to four, but the four he lets us look at are our love and ministry toward God's people. And I see that in this church. He gives us another option, those who have gone before us in faithfulness. And we have so many options to look at, biblical and in our body. God's word and God's oath, that's a good option. The reality of God's hope, always there, ready to be taken hold of, that is a good hope. That is a good confirmation. This passage is about maturity. Go forward, believer, into maturity of thought and of life. Your faithful high priest in the order of Melchizedek awaits you, guides you, strengthens you from the Holy of Holies. Let's pray. God, thank you for the guarantees that we see in your word. And I pray that today, um, as many around the world, especially in Ukraine, consider uh, their current state. 
pray you will help us help them to look to the Holy of Holies where their hope is in Christ and the anchor that is steadfast. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.